Hi, everyone. Welcome to Solar Power World's third Top Solar Contractors Roundtable discussion. We're very excited to talk to solar installers about batteries and energy storage today. This is all in celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Top Solar Contractors list. The 2021 application is open on our website right now, and we encourage any U.S. solar installation company to come out and apply. It is free to apply. We're very supportive of our solar contractor audience here at Solar Power World, and we really enjoy getting to know everyone at these top installation companies each year. My guests today are no strangers to the top solar contractors list, and we're very excited to talk about some batteries. So let's get started with this roundtable. It is a companion to the Contractors Corner podcast, which I hope that you all are subscribed to so you can get all of our installer interviews each month. So like I keep saying, we're talking about batteries today in all markets of the solar industry, from large utility scale to residential homes. I want to thank Panasonic for sponsoring today's conversation. They have their own Evervolt battery system for the residential market, so Panasonic knows a thing or two about batteries and solar. So let me introduce our panelists. Representing the utility scale market, we have Brent Berglund. He is Energy Storage and Solutions Market Director for Mortensen, a company that has been number one on the top solar contractors list many times. To talk about commercial scale energy storage, we have Molly Brown. She is EVP of Energy Development at GenPro Energy Solutions. And to talk about the residential solar plus storage market, we have Scott Maskin, who is co-founder and CEO of Long Island-based Sun Nation. So I thought I'd get started getting to know um, each of the companies and their involvement with storage. So Brent, Mortensen, um, we posted some news recently. You guys are working on this massive solar plus storage project in California. It has 1.1 gigawatts of solar and 2,165 megawatt hours of storage. So you guys clearly know what you're doing with large scale solar. So tell me a little bit about your storage experience and what other kind of projects have you been working on? Sure, thanks Kelly. And, and I really appreciate Solar Power will provide the opportunity to discuss this awesome, awesome market. It's really a lot of fun. It's frustrating at times, but it's really fun. <laughs> I just celebrated my 25th year with Mortensen and embarked on my 20th year dedicated to energy. And I've been involved in the energy storage market since we started it in 2015. Uh, 14 years I spent in wind power, and I thought I was having a good time in wind power that time. And, and energy storage is proving to be, really be the same and more. Um, it's a really, really diverse market and at, at times pretty dizzying. There's a combination of new policies and new business models, new technology, improving economics, arduous permitting, challenging supply, uh, supply and demand issues. Uh, but right now, I, I'd say that the market still is its really exciting, um, but pretty unsettled just with all of those factors that come into play. And, and as, as contractors, we love the ability to be able to figure things out and do it quickly. And this energy storage market uh, proves that that is challenging. Um, it's also a market that's growing pretty steeply. Uh, we've got several projects under construction in the moment. You had mentioned the one that was announced. Uh, in total, we've got about 1,600 megawatts and over 3,300 megawatt hours of work under construction right now. A year ago, we were still building 10 megawatt four-hour systems, and so I haven't even measured the steepness of that curve, but it's pretty steep. Um, and it's also indicative of what's going on in the utility scale market when you look at some of some of the forecasts. 
Our work is a combination of solar and storage uh, and standalone projects in Texas and California. Uh, our customers are serving several offtake uh, arrangements and then several of the projects also have merchant revenue streams. Projects are developing quickly. They're getting much larger. Uh, schedule expectations uh, become tighter and tighter, just like any of the other markets that we've been in. And so there's a there's kind of a mad rush to get as much energy storage online, and it's uh, it's, it's exciting times. Very interesting. Thank you, Brett. Molly, how about GenPro? I know you guys have worked on a lot of commercial solar projects across the country. So, what kind of storage projects have you been working on? So uh, currently we're in the process of installing three solar plus storage projects out in Maryland. The first is going into commissioning in the next few weeks, which will be very, very exciting. And we also are getting very, very close to NTP on an 11 megawatt solar plus one megawatt storage project in Nebraska for Nebraska Public Power District, which will be the first of its kind in the state. Um, so that's what's currently being constructed this year. Uh, in the development pipeline, especially in the last six months, we've seen that kind of shift to this from the smaller utilities to some of the commercial um, entities being more interested in solar plus storage, primarily because of weather related issues. Um, sometimes it's because just of this want of energy independence and, you know, people don't necessarily want to be reliant on the utilities in the grid anymore. So we're doing everything from looking at factories in Nebraska that want to go to complete microgrids to the ERCOT market, which I was down in last week with putting, you know, just a simple battery storage system at the bottom of a skyscraper. So it's a really fun, exciting times with all sorts of clients of all sorts of uh, sizes for us. <laughs> There's that joke, you know, that it's the Wild West again. Solar was the Wild West, yes. you know, 10 years ago, and now the storage market's like that. <laughs> uh, Scott, with Sun Nation, you're installing solar in New York and across Long Island. So how often are customers requesting batteries? So thanks, Kelly, and thanks for inviting me to participate in this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the old dogs of solar, probably doing this now 19 years. Uh, it's funny because as, as technology increases, I, I keep driving by my, the first installation that I ever did, and that was with a Kyocera 120-watt solar panel, okay? And they're still up there working. Uh, it's, it's amazing how things have changed. You know, we, we refer to it as the solar coaster. Um, right now, what we're seeing, you know, storage in New York um, really just started about a year ago. There was a really reasonable NYSERDA rebate. There was, you know, again, we, we always need a little something to prime the uh, pump uh, in New York. And uh, they primed the pump with a rebate that really started to make it, again, we still don't have time of use right here. So, you know, any, any residential or commercial storage is just for, you know, it, it's a really cool bolt-on right now. But what we've seen in the last year, especially because of some of the weather-related instances, is the, ad the adaptation is probably about 20 to 30% now that every solar system we sell residentially, probably two or th two or three of every 10 are coupled with uh, you know some sort of storage. Um, and then we also, we have such a robust market, uh, you know, I, I probably have 10,000 installations. So these people are all coming out of the woodworks as soon as the power goes out, you know, hey, where can, where can I, how can I get my Tesla Powerwall? How can I get this, how can I do that? So we are seeing, and we'll be heading into a, a time of use rate 
Um, we have a pilot program right now, but as soon as that takes event and, you know, our residential storage business becomes not just, you know, a cool, sexy bolt-on, but also it becomes, you know, a, a revenue generator, you know, all hell's going to break loose. <laughs> I kind of, I was going to ask you what you're finding the reasoning behind people wanting to install storage and, do you think the once the time of use rate gets into it, are you going to have like your previous solar customers coming back to you wanting to install storage, you think? Yeah, well, that's already started to happen. They've, they've been shopping at the bit for a while. Even my early adopters, don't forget, I was installing systems when, you know, a 10,000 watt residential solar system was $90,000 to install. <laughs> you know, these are, these are people that were committed and there were great rebates and stuff like that. But um, what we're seeing now is, my, my client base is so diverse from the uber rich A-listers in the Hamptons all the way to FDNY and NYPD. Um, they all have their own unique reasons for wanting it. Um, you know, out east it's about, I want that because it's cool because Elon Musk, Musk is cool. Okay, I know <laughs> it's not gonna do, it's gonna do my CCTV system on my house, but I want it because my neighbor doesn't have it. And then the, there's a lot of other stuff that we'll get into later in the program. And I'll tell you the exact reasons why it's kind of blowing up here. Okay, great. <laughs> Molly, why are, you said the commercial market's kind of picking up for you. Why are they looking into storage? Is it is it a money-saving factor? Um, well, for commercial entities, money is almost always a, a driver, and it has to be with you know, returns that you're supposed to make on capital investment projects. But that's not the only thing that we're seeing now. Um, we work in really heavy ag communities. And when you have extreme power swings with things like irrigation coming online during the summers, a lot of our customers will experience brownouts. Um, and if you are a factory or an entity that needs to run 24 seven or loses money, if you lose power, then you know, that that can't be happening for your business. So now that the price of storage has come back down, it makes more sense for them to be able to create their own mini backup microgrid to continue operations as they need to. So that's one reason. Um, the second is that our rate structures out here in the Midwest are very demand charge heavy. Um, so we've got pretty low KWH rates, but the uh, demand charges on bills are gonna be substantial. So we have, if we have clients that have extreme peaks in demand, we can see some savings um, by peak shaving. Um, and then resiliency during storms. We all know what happened this winter. Um, there were, you know, grid went down all throughout Texas. There were substation blackouts all up through Nebraska and completely into South Dakota. And we're, we're weatherized and used to that stuff. And we were still affected by that. And so, there are going to be more and more commercial entities who are going to look for, you know, not just your traditional backup gen power, because it was really difficult to try and, you know, move diesel around during that time period um, to different facilities or locations. So this gives another level of redundancy within their systems to be able to keep um, up and running within those uh, periods of blackouts. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, and then there's always the, I keep going back to the energy independence, but it's like, you know, I think Midwest people and, you know, the wild, wild west, as you say, we like to be independent. We have to like to have control over 
the way that we do things and energy is one of those things. And people are starting to understand that now you can actually affect that. Um, so that's really important, um, mm -hmm. especially out here. Awesome. Brent, I'm wondering how do utility scale storage projects come about? Like, is it, is it somebody, a utility or someone wants to go solar and so they're starting to add storage to those contracts or, or how, how are these projects coming about? Well, it's a, it's a wide variety and it's, it's very different uh, when you move around the country and a lot of it has to do with market maturity and a regional market maturity, which can be quite a bit different. Again, if you kind of pick on six major regions in the country, but so we just kind of high level, you know, we're in a pretty interesting spot where we work with utilities and independent power producers and developers and technology providers. We see a lot of the market and I'd say we're at a point now where we can safely say that probably half of all of the PV projects we see have storage planned. And I want to emphasize planned because just because they're planned doesn't mean projects are happening, meaning the battery projects aren't happening. So the requests are there, uh, but often the battery component is out of sync with the, uh, with the PV development. And again, it's it's attributable to the lacking in maturity, and there's a lot of reactions that are uh, that are happening in the marketplace with people, you know, catching up with how to best interconnect a battery when it's treated separately um, as an asset when generator interconnection. And there's a, there's a there's a hybrid uh, policy activity happening across the entire country right now, and so all of the all the rule makers are catching up with technology and that's really what they're doing. They're having to rewrite their rules to catch up with this new technology. Uh, the, the most active part of the country is California and Texas, uh, developing in mountain states and Pacific Northwest and then PJM and Southeast. And then we really have MISO bringing up the rear. Um, and so when you go to talk to somebody about a MISO solar project or MISO solar and storage project, it's going to be basically a crickets-like conversation because they're just waiting for MISO to kind of get in gear with FERC 841. Whereas California, there is a um, there's a mandate coming down from the state level, the CPUC, saying bring online as many megawatts and megawatt hours as you can now, and uh, kind of forego your very robust procurement processes to bring on megawatts and megawatt hours. And then we have, as we've already talked about with uh, storm situations and weather situations, Texas is, Texas is on the cusp of probably exploding some more, but they're still trying to take it carefully to figure out how, if there's gonna be this onslaught of batteries coming on the market in Texas, how is it gonna actually happen? And again, that market is having to rewrite their rules to properly incorporate batteries into the system. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, it's, it seems like it's such a lot of utilities are still figuring things out. And I want to talk about uh, battery chemistries and types. I mean, I think it's it's understandable that lithium is dominant within the residential market. But I mean, there are other technologies that are entering larger projects. I wanted to go to Molly. Um, are you looking at anything besides lithium or, or, how, or how are you getting comfortable with all of this new technology as it's emerging? Because everybody's trying to get comfortable with it. Yeah, we're primarily still lithium right now, especially on the, the more 
or mid-scale projects. We've looked at flow technology for a few things, but it just hasn't quite worked out for us. Um, a, a lot of you know what we're having to deal with is as these new um, projects are coming up or are things like remediation plans and decommissioning plans. And we've all had to do those for solar, but what does that look like for a storage system? So that, that's really, you know, what we're focusing on right now with our current projects. But, you know, we have a team, um, I'll say it in this, in a polite way, we're all, we're all a little bit technology geeky. Um, so we love just being out there and learning about everything we can, reading all the, the papers about what new technologies might be coming down the pipeline. Um, but right now, if you're looking at anything commercially viable, we're typically going to just be sticking in that lithium realm. When I asked that same question for Brent with the larger projects, are you also just kind of sticking with lithium right now? Uh, not kind of, we are. Um, <laughs> It, again, it gets back to it, and I, I agree with Molly's comments, is there's, you know, there's lots of discussions and there's lots of tire kicking, and we do stay connected with the market because we want to be, we want to be with or maybe a little bit ahead of the market to understand what's next in terms of different technologies and chemistries, and in particular, getting to this long duration. Um, you know, it's going to happen at some point. It's just a matter of when. Uh, we haven't engineered or built any anything but lithium-ion battery projects. And I think it's probably, at least for us, it's going to be a couple more years before we're involved in some sort of utility-scale pilot. Um, when, you, when you think about what are the things that are potentially impeding the implementation of flow battery projects and, you know, what works best uh, on, you know, at the utility scale, is it's really what passes the diligence efforts. And uh, are these technologies, are they thoroughly technically defined? Do the electrical operating characteristics fit with currently available power electronics? You know, really basic things. Um, can the makers of, of this technology, can they describe and can, uh, can they describe how they're assembled and how they're procured, how they're tested and how they're commissioned with you know, simplicity and straightforwardness? And to us, these are really important factors, which when they're properly communicated, we can then turn them around into commitments to our customers. And so we want to be able to do that to vouch for the technology. And so we look for that. And, and it's not simple, but we're looking for that certain message. And a lot of that has to do with how well is it communicated. And there's a lot of people who are looking at this. And, and I think that that's one of the things that's coming, getting in the way. And there's been some testing that's been done out there um, and some pilot projects and if there were large utility scale projects happening now, I think we'd see them and we're just not seeing them yet. Yeah. Okay. Now I know supply shortages kind of plague many areas of solar, whether it's, you know, solar panel shortages due to tariffs or COVID or anything like that. Scott, you've, you've mentioned people maybe requesting Tesla and I know Tesla has been facing some shortages. What's your battery supply situation like? Uh, do you have enough to meet demand? Well, now that they got that boat out of the Suez Canal, I'm golden. Right? <laughs> uh, you know something? We're never going to be there. Uh, I'm hoping that my, my, my demand always outweighs my supply. But uh, we've been, you know, in, in the residential market, you live and die by your referral. We held back a long time before we entered the market. It, exactly what Brent and Molly said. There's got, there's got to be a story behind this product. 
Is it robust? Is it going to be there? Is it going to deliver for your customer? Because if it doesn't deliver for the customer, you got a lot of problems on your hands. Um, we adopted the test of Powerwall. We had Powerwall one, two, and you know now you know the, the next all the next versions are out. Um, I'm fortunate because I have a great relationship with Tesla. I'm an approved contractor for them. I do their Tesla roof. I do their EV charging. So I've navigated myself into a different supply chain than many others. Um, Tesla's also very smart about, you know, they pick which horse they want to go to the race with, and they, they try to feed that horse and make sure that they're in the race. We're all struggling a little bit. We have our peaks and valleys, but... You know, I want that. I want my customer to say, hey, listen, you want this. This is the coolest, latest, sexiest thing out there. You're going to have to wait a couple of months for it. But you know what? It's going to be there for years and years to come, the same way as your solar system. So, you know, take a pause. You want the best. You want the very best. Um, that being said, we've installed systems from Panasonic. We've installed LG Chem, Sonnen, you, you name it, Enphase. So I'm not, if, if a client wants something, I'm technically, I can do it. Um, but our go-to-market strategy is always to say very focused, this is our product, this is what my guys can troubleshoot, this is what we want to grow with, this product and this theme. And right now, Tess is, you know, that, that you just can't touch the sexiness of that brand. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh... The, the I guess, Elon bros really like to come at us on Twitter to talk about how sexy everything is, too. <laughs> He's the blessing and the curse to the industry. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we had a really good question come in from the audience that maybe I want to uh, direct to Molly. Uh, somebody's asking, does chemistry safety play into your discussions with customers? And that's probably more of... Um, you know, there's there's two really dominant lithium-based batteries, the the ones with cobalt and then the lithium phosphorus one. And so, does does that come into your conversations with customers, Molly? Um, yes, it absolutely does. And that you know, I mentioned remediation really briefly, but if we're working with like a municipality or something like that, then we have to have full-on plans on what to do if something would go horribly wrong. Um, but we also work in a lot of different climates. So uh, we have to look at the temperature ranges of the different types of lithium chemistries. And so if we know that we're going into a climate that's going to have more extreme swings or is going to be a little bit um, outside of the, the typical lithium chemistry, then we might move them um, to, to something else. Um, so it is something that, that we take into account on every project. Okay, interesting. Hey, hey, can, can I touch on that also, Kelly? You know, Please. In New York City, there is absolutely no storage right now in the New York City region. That's basically because of FDNY and safety protocols. But right now, there is a project out there that we're going to be doing, and they've isolated about 300 homes in the Queens area. Uh, that is, if, I, if this was a baseball game, they're probably at the seven and a half inning with getting approval for some storage in the New York City area. So that's really exciting. And it's always been about safety. So are those, I'm assuming those batteries are probably, are they LFP? Do they have to have like special uh, fire suppression around or anything like that? No, I mean, we're talking about standard power walls, honestly. It's a VP oh. system. It's a virtual power plant system that I'm doing with Swell. And um, it's, uh, it's a really interesting project. A lot of people have attempted it, but this one is like, it's getting close. And that'll really tip 
you know, once once they, there's something built, you got to have something. Somebody's got to get through the, you know, through to some the blocks to get going. Definitely, yeah. Well, if New York City can get it going, then yeah, it'll definitely take off. All right, so I think it is a little bit easier to understand how batteries work in residential situations, you know, offering backup or assisting, you know, commercial entities with their demand rates. Brent, I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit, like, how do you size utility scale batteries? What are you trying to accomplish? Like, what size is, what megawatt size is big enough? How do you do that? Yeah, so I think we're at a crossroads in the market where even though several system integrators will still take on overall plant performance, we're seeing, and I think this trend will continue, that some of those companies, the column uh, energy storage equipment packages, that they'll resort to an individual specified item with an individual characteristics, not an entire plant. So they'll give you a, a and I'm greatly simplifying this very complex market, but they'll give you a box and say the box has this kind of characteristics. And then our customers come to us and say, figure out all of the rest, <laughs> figure out all of the design and the physical integration. And in some cases, depending on technology, um, thermal management, and then fire suppression systems and fire alarm and monitoring systems. And again, getting into the getting into the overall plant performance really with the aim to be grid compliant and then also PPA compliant. So our in-house engineering team, we're taking these PPA requirements and sizing systems to ensure that they have these minimum critical power and energy at, at the high voltage level. So then when we do the substation or any sort of interconnect work, we have to take all of that into consideration for when we're sizing the energy storage system because we've got to overcome round trip efficiencies and we have to deal with losses, increased losses over time, um, increased levels of auxiliary power loads as batteries degrade and they create more power and they take more power to keep them cool. So it's a pretty complex for formula, but essentially what you're doing is you're trying to take on the commitments that our developers are making with PPAs and then minim uh, ensuring these and guaranteeing these plant performance. Um, when it comes to looking at the, the you know, getting to your, your big topic and you've got to really take all these environmental conditions, variable battery use cases, uh, commercial commitments, and then the still what I believe is, is still a little bit of a, uh, a mystery in terms of how these batteries are truly going to operate over a 10 or 15 year period and then have you know, the right kind of executable, robust, and, and at the same time, cost-effective formulas, because it's a, it's a it's competitive market, and, and we're having to figure out what's the best solution for our customers. And then when you talk about big, these projects are now turning into projects that have hundreds, if not um, thousands of battery enclosures with thousands of modules, and one of the concerns about getting too big is that if you just get one of those characteristics wrong, you're going to be back fixing something a thousand times. Right. And so you, you have to go through the diligence and you have to be realistic about really the lack of, uh, lack of historical data. And every time somebody comes up with a new chemistry, the baseline for that historical data gets reset. And so it's not like everybody has started with the same type of chemistry, the same type of formula between 
nickel, manganese, and cobalt for those who use those uh, those metals in their batteries. And then you just say start building data from there because in two years the the data set changes or the baseline changes, and so there's this lack of robust historical data, which I think the industry is sorely needing to really be able to figure out what is the way to standardize these projects and the ability to uh, accurately predict performance, which then gets turned into how do you design the right plant around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, I mean, yeah, it's still very early, early days. A lot of testing has to be done. We have another really, really interesting question come in from the, the panel or the, the audience. Um, maybe I could direct it to Scott. How, what are you thinking about the accessibility of storage technologies to the non-wealthy? You did say that, you know, you, you kind of have the range of customers. So um, how can we make sure that there's, you know, storage technologies for everyone? How, how are we making sure that everybody has access to it? 95%, maybe more of my systems are fully financed. So regardless, if you have a reasonable credit score, I have five or six products that are both solar and storage. So it's definitely not just for the, you know, I, 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 I don't use that word wealthy a lot. As somebody who lives on Long Island, my, you know, my poor is, is wealthy in Montana, you know, so, um, but there's a lot of um, different financing methods to get there to get to the same goal. All right, so I, that is that is definitely not a barrier whatsoever, and they all. I mean, they all have them. Uh, coupled with PV, there's there's always uh, there's at least five or six different financing options that include batteries as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, can I jump in on this one too, Kelly? Please. Um, our project down in Nebraska that we're currently working on is a solar plus storage project, but it's actually a community solar project as well. And we were able to get uh, under the baseline price from the utility. So everyone who buys into that community solar project is actually going to have a savings on their bill. Um, it's not an adder. Um, so that's a, a great example where you can have kind of those dual use technologies combined into one system that, that allows ac access for everyone within the community and not just certain individuals or not just for the utility company. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, great insight. So I thought we'd kind of wrap up uh, our little section of this. You can still submit some questions in the, the Q&A box on your screen and we'd be happy to continue the conversation, but I thought we'd wrap up just talking about the future of solar plus storage. So I thought we'd go back to Brent with Mortensen. How does Mortensen look at the future of solar and storage projects? You kind of talked about it, like the big markets right now are California and Texas, but do you expect to do more separation of solar and storage and just doing more like standalone storage? Uh, I think both are still gonna be prevalent for some time. Uh, to date, the work in Texas has largely been standalone storage. Uh, we're seeing several of our existing customers come to us and wanna renovate their existing solar projects that might either be completed or under construction and quickly trying to pivot to add batteries to them. Uh, the interconnection process in ERCOT doesn't really support that to do it real nimbly. So there's still, you know, you're still going to be in this overall two-year planning cycle before projects come online. Uh, the, again, this Texas energy emergency that happened earlier in the year is forcing a lot of that, and, and they're really rethinking their, their overall grid. Uh, so that's a good thing because that means more batteries are going to come online. When you make a distinction between 
a solar and storage project and a standalone storage project, you still got to really understand what is its business case because a, uh, a those who are installers might look at a standalone storage project as one that's just a battery and nothing else, but that project might be added to an existing solar project. And that business case for how that battery is going to operate and integrate with that existing solar project, I would contend is still a solar plus storage project because it's going to operate that way. Whereas a standalone storage project in Texas, which might be there to um, take advantage of nodal price spikes uh, and also uh, frequency regulation ancillary services will we'll operate differently, will make money for owners differently than if it were to essentially uh, uh, extend the usability of a solar project by shifting the energy in the evening period of time. So you've got to really understand what the business case is. And I think they're, they're, um, they're all going to uh, still move forward. What I, what I'm really interested in and, and I'm quasi excited for it is to figure out when big batteries are going to be just plugged into the bulk power system and be done by regulated utilities who are at this, uh, they're not at a crossroads because they don't know what to do yet because an energy storage project that is plugged into a transmission line um, is gonna not be allowed to be owned by a generator. And so who's gonna own the asset and how is that asset gonna be defined? And so when we start talking about getting projects plugged into or owned by utilities on the 345 KV, 500 KV, 765 KV systems uh, is going to be really interesting to see how that develops and how those projects will actually provide benefit to the utilities and the independent system operators and who's going to actually move forward and build them. We're seeing a lot more utility-driven renewable energy. Excel Energy does a lot of work where they're moving forward with wind power and solar power that they're going to own and operate, and we're on the cusp of trying to figure out When's your next big battery project going to be? I have a question for you, Brent. Is it easier for you to maybe add storage to an existing solar array after the fact, like just connecting like through the transmission and all that compared to doing a standalone storage? Is it is the infrastructure already there with the solar project or do you need to do extra work to add that storage onto that site? You're, you will have to do extra work to add solar, I'm sorry, add storage to an existing solar project. You're gonna to have to renovate the control systems. You're gonna to have to renovate the, the protection systems and you're gonna to have to make sure that the auxiliary power and the metering. So there is a fair amount of renovation work that still happens when you're renovating a solar project with a storage project. Um, at the you know at the end of the proverbial day, it's still probably more cost effective than just plucking down and doing a you know, new greenfield standalone storage project. Again, it gets comes down to the business cases. Why are you building the battery? Who's it going to benefit? And how's it going to make money? Gotcha. Okay, Molly, what does the future of commercial solar plus storage look like? Um, I think it's going to get a lot busier in the, the next few years. Um, you know, there's a lot of benefits on the commercial side that we've talked about, including, you know, demand savings, peak savings, resiliency. But there's also a push um, for green and sustainable businesses. 
So what the commercial industry has that they can actually put out to the world is that, yes, they are trying to be green and sustainable businesses. And this is just another tool kind of in their tool belt so they can kind of have the perfect trifecta of the maybe we can save some money. We're going to make sure that we don't go down during an outage and we can actually use this as a, a marketing tool to say that we're a green business. So I'm very, very excited at some of the opportunities that, that we've been working on and can't wait to get a few of these projects in the ground and prove some use cases so we can let everybody know how it goes. <laughs> Definitely. Scott, what's your outlook on solar and storage in the residential market? So, uh, you know, I'm riding the horse into the battle. I've, 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 um, we've had a couple of instances here that have really sparked this industry. First of all, COVID has been a blessing. I mean, we were shut down for 12 weeks. I don't want to say it was a blessing that way, but from the, the new norm, you're all, every one of you seems to be working from home, you know, so the new norm, right? Um, then we had a power outage named Isaias, Isaias. So I'm very involved in a lot of business groups, and I started challenging some of my colleagues, CEOs of a bank, and I said, so let me ask you a question. Right now, you work remote. Yes, I am. How much did you spend to outfit your team to work remotely? $1.27 million. That's great. What happens if the power goes out? And he looked at me like I had three heads. He goes, well, I don't know. What, what do you mean? I says, well, there's every indication that you will have connectivity through, you know, your Fios provider or whoever else. But without power, without a reliable power source at home, you're shut down. How about your executive team? Do any of them have, have reliable power at their house in case of an outage? And not one of them did. And all of a sudden, it was... $150,000 PV and solar system over here. And it was three batteries over here. And it's, you know, so people are starting to understand that if this is going to continue, it's absolutely vital that people have resilient power and reliable power at their home um, so that they can conduct their businesses. Uh, so that is, that is the single greatest takeaway that's happened, um, you know, in, in the residential. storage industry right now from a business perspective. It's really, really enlightening people. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm all in what I've, what I've seen in this industry in, for so long. I, I agree with my colleagues that it, the technology has to be tried and true. You cannot go out there with, I love the fact there's a guy right now taking, in a garage that's going to come up with the next great thing. And we'll all see him at, you know, at SPI and stuff like that. But I've seen so many solar systems, so many inverters that came to market and failed because either they weren't, you know, they didn't have the proper capital, the idea, whatever. And if you adopt too soon, you're going to have to answer those questions and go back on those thousand calls. So right now, I think that they've done a really good job of bringing products to market that have the software that makes makes it all tick. That it's, it's simple. Now what they got? Now it's about reducing costs. Okay, and 
and making making the case for it that way. And every home, you know, is going to have have an EV charger. Going to have an EV, an EV charger, a storage option, and PV on the roof. It's just not. It's not if. It's just when. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, there are some questions I do want to get to from, from the audience. And I know you guys have talked about, you know, there's the tried and true, you know, chemistries. We have to make sure that stuff is proven. And, and a tried and true chemistry is lead acid. And I actually, I released a story on solarpowerworldonline.com. Uh, this week about how people are saying, you know, lead acid, it, it's dead in solar and for storage, like, like uh, lithium is definitely more dominant. But I'm wondering, Molly, you kind of said that you guys were geeky about chemistries and everything. Um, do you, do you still, or even you, Scott, are you guys looking at lead Acid at all, or is it the software that is really from the lithium side that is becoming more dominant? I'll I'll jump in on that one. Um, we're we're pretty remote here, out in South Dakota, and you know our some of our early early solar business. Was cabins in the middle of nowhere that you can't run um, lines to. So we've used a, a lot a lot of lead acid in the past. Um, we haven't done quite as much off-grid in the, the past few years as we did in the early days. Um, so we've moved predominantly predominantly to lithium and they're just a little more difficult to take care of. You don't, if you don't treat the system right, it's not gonna work correctly for you. Um, and a lot of homeowners and, and especially, you know, off-grid cabin owners aren't necessarily have the wherewithal to to be able to manage or maintain a system like that on their own, um, lithium's a, a little easier to to deal with it from that aspect. So I don't know if you had anything else to add, Scott. Yeah, you know, for me, it's got to be in a really cool looking box, and it's got to have a really cool warranty. Uh, that's what <laughs> I really want to say. Um, and technology is going to change. There's no question about that. For me, uh, you know, we look at where is this battery going to go? How big does it have to be? You know, the end phase system is is quite a bit smaller, but needs a little bit more space when we talk about New York State building codes. So, um, we're really looking at logistics, but you know, by the same token, getting the power wall 
down into a basement. You know, it's, 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 it's not, it's cumbersome. So we're always going to be looking for the product that's going to take the, the residential market into, you know, in, in play, you know, really make it easy to work with, reliable. Uh, the technology inside, really, if it doesn't work, they're going to call us. If it doesn't work, we're going to get RMA the product. So, uh, you know, again, it's got to be in a cool box, and it's got to have a great warranty to it to work. Yeah, that's true. Like a lot of homes that want to have battery technologies, they don't usually have that uh, room off the side of their house that could house a bunch of lead acid batteries or the size of what they need. So you really kind of have to take that into consideration. Yeah. And, uh, we've had people like, you know, you'll go down a stair into a basement and, you know, we could have put the power walls, you know, a six set, a six bag of power walls. We could have put them over there by the boiler. They wanted it dead center so that when everybody walked downstairs, they framed out an area for their towels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have another question here uh, about the commercial space, Molly. Uh, what types of financing is being used for solar and storage? in the commercial space. Um, it's going to depend on the market and what, really what you're allowed to do. Uh, some markets you can do commercial PPAs in. Um, some you would have to do some kind of of leasing, a lot of the corporations that we're working with have a tax appetite. So they're actually using the projects to for the tax credits as well. That's something that's very attractive to them. Um, so we don't get asked, especially if it's a larger entity that has like a corporate mandate behind them. We don't get asked a lot for that, those types of financing, but there are, there are options available just depending on which state and which market you're in and what you're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have another question about asking about how, how are you handling arc flash design and and what are you seeing as a minimum distance from the face of the rack to maintain safe working clearances? I don't, I don't know if anybody might have some insight on that. I send it to my engineering team. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes, we're talking about a residential application. 
So if it's a residential application, all the New York State building codes are going to apply. I think it's I think it's three feet in front of it. Something like that's the same as an electrical panel. But so we're you, not yeah we're not yeah. going to be putting those Tesla power walls in the middle of living rooms and and everything else. No, but you know.